0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Holly, do you know what I've been exceptionally enjoying on television this fall?
0: I do, but tell me anyway.
1: Sleepy Hollow. (laughs) Me too. Sleepy Hollow is, from a historical standpoint, quite ridiculous. Bit of a mess. It is in many other ways quite
0: ridiculous. It's kind of a good reminder to me to sometimes just shut all of that analytical, critical brain off and just enjoy the ride.
1: Yeah, I, I extremely, extremely enjoy the ridiculous ride of Sleepy Hollow. I enjoy the fact that we've got a guy that's been walking around in multi-hundred-year-old clothing that somehow is not falling apart or stinking.
0: Enjoy the ride, Tracy. So great. <laughs>
1: uh, if you have ever watched the show, you know that they take some just absurd liberties with actual history But the reason that we are talking about it right now is that they also keep talking about the Headless Horseman as a Hessian. Yes. Right? Uh, This is not something that the show just made up out of whole cloth. Uh, In The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Washington Irving describes Sleepy Hollow this way. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region and seems to be commander-in-chief of all the powers of air is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It is said by some to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper whose head had been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who has ever and anon by, seen by the country folk hurrying along in the gloom of night as if on the wings of the wind.
0: So in the TV show, it's not a cannonball.
1: Nope, it's a sword. Yeah. Uh, b- because uh, in, in truth, the Headless Horseman is not only a Hessian soldier, but also one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and therefore kind of immortal.
0: Yeah, They um, actually, in the show, didn't they hit him? No, they shot him.
1: First, Ichabod Crane shoots him, and he doesn't die, so then he cuts his head off. Yeah. And he appears to die, but then comes back later, along with Ichabod. Uh So... <laughs> that, of course, as as things do when I'm watching TV, uh, made me think, how can we talk about this in the podcast? And I really got curious about who these Hessians were. Right. I know the same basic description as many people who've studied the American Revolution, which is sort of uh, mercenaries hired by Britain during the Revolutionary War. And that is not even an accurate description, really.
0: (laughs) Or when we were first talking about it, I said, Christopher Walken with filed down teeth. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because he plays the Headless Horseman in the Tim Burton uh, Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. So, Which is the exposure that most people, I think, get. They know the word Hessian because of that story. And A lot of them, I know even talking to my husband about it when he asked what we were recording this coming week, and I said, oh, the Hessians, and he goes, I don't know anything about that.
1: Yeah, I pretty much know that one sentence that I just said mm-hmm. about about mercenaries hired by Britain during the Revolutionary War. Not really accurate. Um, We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about who these guys were, where they came from, why they were participating in the Revolutionary War uh, in the first place, and we're also going to talk about their most famous altercation with the army of George Washington. Yeah. Um so there is so much other history that you can talk about with the Hessians, but that's what we're gonna keep to today so that this podcast is not four hours and or eight parts long.
0: So we have to start in yeah. Germany. Sort yes. of
1: kind of Germany. Yeah. Uh Germany at the time of the American Revolutionary War was not this unified nation that we know it as today. It was more like a collection of about three hundred little principalities and they all shared a common German language and culture. They were basically little city states. They all had their own rulers, they all needed their own defenses, and consequently they tended to have a pretty sizable, compared to their size, organized armed forces.
0: Great Britain, on the other hand, had a hard time recruiting soldiers at this point in history. Uh, and even if people were pressed into service, those men still needed training. And it just was not the same level of military organization. Uh, basically, the British economy at this point was robust enough that other work was easy to come by. So military recruitment was not very appealing for the average man. And it was very challenging for the government. To raise an army
1: yeah Britain also had the advantage of being separated from the rest of Europe by the English Channel so it didn't need to have an enormous standing army to really defend itself uh, constantly uh, this was not true on the continent where a lot of times nations had long borders with one another that didn't necessarily have any kind of natural features to deter invasions so uh, on the the continent of Europe, people, nations were a lot more likely to have bigger armed forces than Britain had
0: at the po- At that point. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, but on top of that, George III was the elector of the German Principality of Hanover. And this effectively made George III a German prince, in addition to being the king of Great Britain and Ireland. Uh, he was automatically considered to be a German ally.
1: So when George III needed troops to fight for him in the American Revolution... German princes were pretty eager to help him. He was their ally, and they kind of wanted to show off their military strength.
0: And Britain only had about 55,000 troops to send to fight in the American Revolution. About 30,000 additional soldiers came from hesse Castle, Braunschweig, Hess Hanau, Anspark Beirut, Waldeck, and anhalt Zerbst to fight for George III. 12,000 of them, the overwhelming majority from any one place, were from hesse Castle.
1: Yes. So today, Hessian has come to encompass all of these troops. But from here on out, we're pretty much going to uh, be talking about the troops specifically from Hess Castle for a couple of reasons. One is that Hess Castle was the biggest participant in the industry of armies for hire that existed at that time. That came to be known as Sodottenhandel in 1727. The other is that troops from Hess Castle were the ones who were occupying Trenton in 1776. That is a particularly famous Revolutionary War battle that we'll talk about a little bit later in the episode.
0: So at the time of the American Revolution, uh, military had become Hess Castle's dominant industry. And this was partly a necessity. It was a middle-sized collection of villages that otherwise survived through subsistence farming. Uh, its position was also, unfortunately, between two parts of Prussia, so Hess Castle was often in the line of fire, or more accurately, the line of marching troops on their way from one place to another. Uh, by the mid-1600s, the army there was kind of flagging, and recovery from attacks or just being kind of caught in the crossfire or in the way of these travels of enemy of other armies was really slow for the little principality.
1: But in 1687. Hess Castle decided to lease some military forces to Venice. Basically, Venice was paying Hess Castle money. Hess Castle was sending troops their way to fight for them. Uh, and it was kind of a mixed success. Almost 80% of the thousand men that they sent were killed. But those men fought well enough that they earned a reputation for being good, reliable soldiers. And so the next year, uh, Hess Castle sent 3,400 men to serve William of Orange under a similar agreement. Their performance was so highly valued that uh, suddenly Hessian troops were in demand from other governments. And Hess Castle realized that it could maybe make this into a bigger industry and turn a profit over maintaining and leasing an army for other governments to use.
0: So I could see where the appeal for subsistence farmers would be really high. There
1: was a lot of Uh, appeal
0: there. And as Hess Castle's efforts grew and were joined by other German principalities, they eventually crowded out the existing private army-for-hire industry that had been in place before that point.
1: Yeah, so there were already people who were raising armies and basically selling them to other people. But it was pretty much a private enterprise. And apparently,
0: you know, the Hessian troops were higher quality than other options Yeah, it's like
1: well and these these little principalities got so good at it <laughs> that uh, that the private enterprises couldn't compete and also people started to view private armies as being a pretty shady business to be in so uh, that that faded away as all these various uh german principalities started making their own armies uh, the focus on mi- the military also trickled down to the rest of hess castle Hessians uh, generally used their own weapons and uniforms in battle. And so having this big army going on created more work for craftspeople. The income that came into the government allowed them to bring in experts to improve farming and husbandry methods. Uh, And with these improvements, rural families got bigger. They provided a bigger pool of recruits for the military um, some of the revenue from the operation also went into things like hospitals and schools. And thanks to all of this income that came in from leasing armies out, uh, taxes for the rest of the citizens were lower.
0: So leasing armies to other nations was obviously a major economic boon that lifted Hess Castle out of maybe not exactly what you would categorize as poverty, but at least pretty austere circumstances. They were getting by. But as we said, subsistence farming, well, they started to more prosper and then they became, yeah, more, much more prosperous. Uh It wasn't always pretty, though. When your country basically becomes a factory for making soldiers, there are going to be some repercussions. Uh, when battles go badly or when battles come to your own doorstep. So it did take an immense toll. And
1: even even with those downsides, Hess Castle became the most militarized state in Europe. At the height of this industry, there was a soldier for every 15 civilians and a quarter of all families had at least one member who was in the military.
0: Boys were registered for service when they turned seven, and men had to present themselves to an official every year to determine if they were going to be inducted into service from the time they turned 16 until they hit 30. Uh, so-called, quote, expendable people, which were the shiftless, idle, unemployed, etc., uh, could be pressed into service at any time. On the other hand, people who had more crucial roles, including roles like keeping the army dressed and fed, would be exempt from this practice.
1: Yeah, it's the modern side of me thinks that this sounds sort of like a dreadful circumstance to be in. But wages were good. Military families got tax benefits. The pay was better than being a servant or a farm laborer. And while discipline was strict uh, within the military, if you were a person who behaved yourself, it was not really a problem. So it was an attractive proposition.
0: And there was also some other attractive stuff. Right booty and plunder. Yes. (laughs) On the military side of things, Hessians had a reputation for being really sharp and skilled, but to civilians, they were viewed often as plunderers and looters, taking whatever they wanted from the lands where they fought. And often this was not actively endorsed by the command, but it wasn't exactly discouraged either. They kind of let the soldiers do their plundering without much repercussion in terms of uh, being punished or
1: Right. So with the pay and the plunder and and the stability, becoming a Hessian soldier was a pretty popular career career move. Um, Also, it was, you know, it was an army of intense training and strict discipline, but at the same time, one that instilled a lot of pride in its forces. Its leaders were generally educated men who were promoted from within, according to merit. Um, You see a lot of. Military history where the officers were basically coming from the aristocracy and mm-hmm. they were they were officers because they were aristocrats. Yeah. The uh, the aristocracy in Castle was not big enough to be doing that for this whole army. So they had to instead promote men based on their skill and merit, which meant that most of the time people were in units where they had a good boss.
0: Having a good boss is a good thing. It goes a long way. It does.
1: It You know, even when your job is maybe one that uh, might be particularly Hard and take you away from your family for a long time. Men who had served also told their sons about what an honorable and rewarding service it was. Uh, and the, the principality as a whole was also a Calvinist society with a really strong sense of duty. So there were a lot of social factors going into the popularity of being in the military.
0: And while many nations, including Britain, often hired soldiers from Germany, this was not really viewed favorably by the Founding Fathers here in the U.S. Uh, in the Declaration of Independence, among the lists of grievances against the king, one of them is, quote, He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. Not a popular move. Kind of a scathing review of that practice.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, and later on, the rest of the world would start to view it sort of the same way. But at this point, the, yeah, the, the, the colonies were extremely displeased about this idea. But even though uh, today a lot of people call Hessians mercenaries and they were referred to as mercenaries in the Declaration of Independence, they weren't really mercenaries. What they were was auxiliaries. So mercenaries were individual people who served in foreign armies for pay. There were mercenaries in both the British and Hessian armies. Um, and these are people that like had their own negotiated terms and, and rates of working and like a length of time that they would serve. Auxiliaries, though, were armies that served on behalf of governments with subsidies being paid at the national level instead of the personal level. And this is a difference that was recognized by international law. Uh, And at this point in history, the hiring of auxiliaries was an extremely common and pretty well accepted practice, except for in the colonies,
0: where it was not favored at all. So these were really well-trained soldiers who were paid to fight. So not really that different from military service today, except that they had been kind of contracted en masse through a government agency.
1: Yeah, So as soon as Britain decided to use force against the American revolutionaries, it was pretty much a given that they were going to have to use a hired army as part of the package. Britain, as we said earlier, just did not have a big enough army on its own.
0: And German principalities started offering troops to the British in August of 1775, just a couple of months after the Battle of Bunker Hill. And once Britain agreed, they set a date for troops from Hess Castle to be ready to march, and that date was February 15th of 1776. This was meant to put Hessians in America in time for a summer campaign. Time was so
1: much of the essence in this whole plan that this deadline was actually set earlier than the agreement between the two nations was going to be ratified. Uh, Once it was actually signed, Britain then backdated the pay for their service by a month to January 15th.
0: And for American units, the Hessians include Jaeger or hunter companies. Uh, these were foresters and huntsmen, and their role was sort of like elite rangers. They had better field skills and were better marksmen than average recruits. And the Jaeger got better pay and really spiffy uniforms that were green uh, so that they could blend into the woods. And also in the mix were four grenadier battalions and 15 infantry battalions, which included field and garrison regiments. And those troops were dark blue.
1: The agreement between Britain and Hess Castle outlined the pay, uh, the removal of injured Hessians back to Germany, medical care and free passage for the troops mail. The medical care was similar to the care that was going to be provided for British troops, but it was going to be given by German doctors who would travel with the units.
0: And the Hessian troops that came with this agreement could only serve in Europe and America. Hess Castle had to pay for replacement soldiers who were killed or injured too badly to return to the field. On the other hand, if illness or a shipwreck or some other disaster wiped out a whole unit, that was then on Britain to pay for. That was their responsibility.
1: Even though uh, a Hessian army seems to like a given from this point, like we said, hiring a foreign army was pretty standard. And how warfare went at this point, there were some really big worries within Britain about what the results of this action would be. Uh, one part of this was that a lot of people had the just the, the justifiable fear that if they started a full scale military action with hired troops and everything, That was going to irreparably damage the relationship between the colonies and Britain. So that no matter how the war went, it would not ever be repaired from having started with, okay, we're gonna have a big military action with you guys. Yeah.
0: And there were also, to consider, 150,000 Germans that were living in the colonies. And British leadership worried that a German army was going to be convinced to desert and resettle by these existing colonists. And there were, in fact, some desertions along the way.
1: Yeah, there was even some talk that maybe they should use troops from Russia instead, because there were fewer people in the colonies who spoke Russian. So there would be less of a temptation to lure people away from their units uh, to this sort of idealistic dream of of what the Founding Fathers were shooting for with, uh, with the founding of, of the nation. Uh, these troops started to move out a little bit later than was originally planned, and a lot of it just had to do with the logistics of moving so many people. Divisions started leaving their garrisons in Germany in February and March, and they continued uh, to, to depart um, until the spring. They moved from their garrisons in cycles of marching and resting with the so-called rest days really involving a lot of training and exercise.
0: We would call that active rest day. Yes. <laughs> Hessian troops embarked for America in April and June of 1776, so several months after the initial plan. And their first stop was Portsmouth, where they got more food and additional ships so the voyage would be more comfortable. Uh, otherwise, they really would not have been in any sort of condition to fight when they arrived. It was a very long trip. Uh, the first ships were sighted at Long Island almost three months after they had departed uh, on August 12th.
1: Yeah, the, the idea was that they were supposed to arrive ready to fight. So while it was still a long and difficult sea voyage, it was a long and difficult sea voyage with more comforts than you might ordinarily see. Better
0: amenities.
1: Everybody had a pillow and two blankets and a place to sleep and and pretty nice allotments of rations, at least until later in the voyage when a lot of that was spoiled and gross. Even with those amenities and the relatively spacious and and comfortable transport, about 800 Hessians in that first convoy were sick once they arrived. Scurvy and diarrhea were two of the big complaints. They also, uh, because they had not seen fresh fruit for months while they were uh, on their way, a lot of them made themselves ill on unripe apples after they landed, Um, and also exhausted themselves in the manual effort of setting up camps once they got off the ships.
0: Once on American soil, uh, they had a number of compensations to make. So the Hessians had a reputation for being exceedingly competent soldiers and really well disciplined, but their training in Germany really didn't always translate uh, to combat skills in America there had been a lot of focus on marching in very precise formations and that didn't work well when mixed in with british formations or in skirmishes with small bands of revolutionaries who were fighting in more of a guerrilla combat style
1: yeah you kind of imagine a a, a well trained army that's very focused on maneuvers uh, and on precision in and, and marching and formation and things like that. And then being harried by little bands of scrappy guys with guns, yeah, taking potshots at them from the woods. Not really compatible Didn't fighting styles. Yeah, the colonists had also gotten word that Hessians were on their way. And they had made their own recruitment and training efforts to try to compensate Um These, though, as we we just said, they were scrappier, raggedier forces than these professionally trained and dressed troops from Britain and Germany. So the American troops looked like they were just going to be easily overwhelmed by the Hessians and the British. They did not look like trained, competent soldiers. They looked like (laughs) ragamuffins, really, like I'm sort of imagining them as grown up street urchins with rocks.
0: Um, like someone shipped them in from a Dickens novel. Yeah. They just went through time to the battlefield.
1: Yeah. With some
0: soot on their faces.
1: So, yeah, it, and for a while, um, the, the American uh, forces faced a lot of defeat. Uh, in the late summer, fall, and early winter of 1776, the colonial forces met the Hessians again and again. And they saw what seemed like just an endless string of defeats. This really cemented the idea in the, in the, you know, minds of the Hessian troops that the Americans were not good soldiers, but they would be easily defeated. And this overconfidence would turn out to be a problem.
0: As overconfidence always. often does. Yes. Do you want to pause for just a second before we get to the meaty story of battle? Yes. And
1: take a word from our sponsors. Yes. And now let's get back to the most famous battle. That the Hessians were involved in in the American Revolution. This is the one that followed George Washington's famous crossing of the Delaware River on Christmas night, 1776. And that happened at Trenton.
0: So the brief version, the war had been going very, very poorly for Washington's army. With many defeats and retreats and trouncings by the Hessians. Desertion had become a huge problem and new recruits were getting more and more difficult to come by. The mood of both the army and the leadership was pretty seriously demoralized and it was basically fraught with pessimism.
1: Yeah, th- th- this had started out as a very idealistic attempt to uh, become independent and to start a, a new, pretty groundbreaking system of government. Uh, and then as the fighting went on, it was just like being kicked over and over, it was not going well. You could see how that would break their spirits. Yes. At this point, uh, the wise thing to do from many people's perspective would have been for the, uh, the colonists to spend the winter regrouping for a spring campaign. And that's really what the main portion of the British Army had done, uh, leaving the Hessians to hold some of the key ground.
0: But many of Washington's men had not reenlisted. He was going to lose them as soldiers at the end of the year. Uh, And there was no guarantee of getting them to change their minds or being able to replace them with fresh troops. So he decided to make a really extraordinarily risky combat move in the hope that it would be successful and reinvigorate the effort for independence.
1: Yeah, he basically he had to do something or he was not going to have much of an army anymore. So on Christmas night of 1776, Washington led his army across the Delaware River from Pennsylvania to New Jersey. Uh, This was inordinately treacherous. The river was close to flood stage. And because it was winter, it had frozen over in many places. This was a river that would like it would freeze in big sheets. And then the sheets would break up and these giant pieces of ice would float down the river. So these giant ice flows were constantly threatening the boats that were trying to cross a river that was already flooding. On top of that, while they were crossing, a storm started up and pelted them with rain and sleet and blinding snow. So like this was already just daring and dramatic. And it was immortalized in the famous, although in many ways not representative of what actually happened, painting by Emmanuel Lutz which was made in 1851. And that is the famous Washington Crossing the Delaware painting. Yeah, Which makes the flows look like icebergs. And it also <laughs> seems to be happening in the daytime. Like, there are some things that are they're not right there. Everybody
0: looks beautiful, everybody looks even beautiful. though they're pelted with misery. <laughs> so, uh, Washington and his 2,400 troops did make it across the river, but two other units that were supposed to be supporting him could not. The weather and the river were simply too treacherous. And because the river crossing had taken so long, Washington had really given up the element of surprise that he had been counting on. Since they'd no longer be able to reach Trenton before dawn, so things were not looking very good for them at this point. And their attack plan, which started out kind of like was a wild card plan, it was a hail mary, even more of a long shot.
1: Yes, this was the hail mary pass. <laughs> yeah. Of George Washington. So uh, even though they had just had this treacherous river crossing that was exhausting and blinding and put them way behind schedule, Washington attacked Trenton anyway with a two pronged attack and uh, spoiler alert in under an hour, they had taken the city along with 919 Hessian prisoners. It's pretty impressive. It is. The Hail Mary worked. And that may be one of the reasons why the legend goes that all of this went so amazingly well for George Washington because the Hessians were drunk because they partied too late into the night for Christmas the night before. That's not true.
0: No. Maybe it's one of those things where it uh, strains credulity so much that people have to come up with a reason that the Hessians could be taken down. Surely
1: they must all have been drunk. They were
0: hammered. That's the (laughs) only way this could have worked. One of them
1: was kind of. Hammered. But uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the greater proportion
1: of the men, we're going to talk about now uh, why it is not that they were drunk.
0: Although in my head, there's a very funny version of this now playing out where Washington's troops basically walk into like a herd of, you know, jolly stumblinas who were just sloshed. But
1: yeah, that's no. not real.
0: That didn't happen. But in my head, it's very funny and I wish I could share it.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> these were trained and disciplined men. They had been forewarned that Washington might attack them, and there had been a number of skirmishes in the surrounding area leading up to this attack. There were three Hessian regiments staying in Trenton, and uh, every night one of them would sleep in their uniforms with their weapons just in case they were attacked in the night. Their commanding officer, uh, Colonel Johann Rall, he had definitely overindulged himself on Christmas. He didn't set a really awesome example Uh, But the fighting men were, on the whole, sober.
0: So you must have been kind of an outlier since it sounds like that's not really the way most of them would have conducted themselves. No. Uh, but the problem was that while they may not have been drunk, they were, however, uh, sick, they were exhausted, they were short on men. Uh, and in the days before the battle, Colonel Rall had written to Hessian Colonel Carl von Donop to say that they were undermanned and that they were exhausted. Von Donop had passed this up Uh, to General James Grant, a British general who was commanding a number of scattered garrisons. And General Grant had simply not taken this information seriously. He wrote off the idea that Washington would ever dare to cross the Delaware at this time of year. And he described the rebels as having, quote, neither shoes nor stockings are, in fact, almost naked, starving for cold, without blankets, and very ill-supplied with provisions. So he thought there was no way they would... Even if they were going to try it, they weren't going to make it.
1: Yeah. But but even though he had pretty much been like, this is not an actual problem, uh, he did write to Rawl on Christmas Eve with this kind of blithe note that said, Washington has been informed that our troops have been marched into winter quarters and has been told that we are weak at Trenton and Princeton. And Lord Sterling expressed a wish to make an attack upon these two places. I don't believe he will attempt it, but be assured that my information is undoubtedly true. So I need not advise you to be on your guard against an unexpected attack at Trenton. So even though he had pretty much said, like, you guys don't need more men. It's fine. Don't
0: worry about it.
1: Then literally Christmas Eve.
0: Worry about it a little, but don't worry about it. (laughs) Yeah,
1: maybe you do need to actually worry about this, but not really.
0: Yeah. And it's unclear whether Rawl ever read this note. It's possible that he mistook a skirmish the night before as the sneak attack that he'd been forewarned of. He canceled the dawn patrol outside Trenton the day after Christmas due to miserable weather and the aforementioned sickness and exhaustion of the troops.
1: Yeah, but it really might not have helped them much if they had done this dawn patrol and gotten a little bit more advanced warning that the that George Washington troops were incoming. Uh. It was their overconfidence and their German military training that was really their undoing.
0: Yeah, the Hessians formed up in ranks outside of town. They were ready to meet Washington's army, as they'd been taught. Uh, And it was snowing, and their muskets got wet, and they could not fire.
1: Yeah. Meanwhile, the Americans came in behind them, took the town. Uh, That immediately gave them shelter and a place where they could easily dry out their own weapons. And they took the bridge under Assam Pink Creek. And that cut off the Hessians' easiest way to escape. So when the Hessians did try to escape, their soldiers were pretty quickly bogged down in ice and mud. So basically, the Hessian army had followed their military training to go meet out in the field, which where their mean. weapons became waterlogged and they couldn't really defend themselves, uh, while Washington was like, now we have, we're in your city, drying out our stuff. <laughs> This is going to go really well for us. Nice
0: formation, champ. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And this all meant that in addition to being outnumbered by more than a thousand, the Hessians were at this point hugely outgunned and they had no way to retreat. And they were trying to fight with weapons that were too wet to fire, uh, whereas Washington's army had a warm, dry city that they were working from.
1: So, like we said, it took under an hour and there were 919 Hessian prisoners taken.
0: And Washington... uh, Understandably, being quite pleased with himself, paraded his prisoners through Philadelphia so that everyone could see these Hessians that he had conquered. Yeah, done a sneak attack on. <laughs>
1: yeah. So the the big thing, I mean, in addition to the fact that there was it was led off by this dramatic river crossing, um, this aren't this battle really reinvigorated the American cause and renewed the war effort. Uh, obviously, eventually the colonists won. Um, had this whole dramatic thing not happened and kind of restored people's hope in the effort, I don't know that it would have gone that way.
0: It really is like the event that turned the tide, yeah. for sure. Uh, so yeah,
1: there's no telling. It's not even as though Trenton was like the world's biggest uh, strategic point. It was more, the strategy was more about making everyone more confident that the war could go in. Favor.
0: Yeah, it was a huge morale boost. I yeah. mean, that's like the understatement of the year. Uh And interestingly enough, after the war, uh somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 Hessians actually stayed in the U.S. Uh, you know, they found the growing German community and the promises of freedom and liberty to really be quite an attractive incentive to stick around. And during the war, at least 5,000 of them had deserted to fight for the American side.
1: Yeah. So this concern... <laughs> that maybe Hessians would desert once they discovered how many other German people were in the colonies. That was actually, it had a little substance to it. Pretty valid. Uh, Not long after the end of the American revolution, the prevailing thinking in Europe started to turn against the idea of hired armies at all. So while the idea of, of privately organized uh, armies for hire had already started to fall out of favor, the idea of, of nations doing this started to fall out of favor as well. Uh, As, Time moved toward the 1800s, Hess Castle was less and less of a military industry. And then in 1806, it was merged into the Confederation of the Rhine, meaning that the state didn't exist on its own anymore. Uh, so there was no more army for hire factory, uh, operating out of Europe. Putting
0: it, an end to that whole system.
1: Yeah. It didn't, it didn't end immediately just then, but it was on its way out.
0: Yeah. That was probably the final nail in the coffin, so to speak.
1: Yeah, it's that's the Hessians.
0: And I, uh, you know, it's a, a good one because I, I think there is a lot of misconception or just a uh, mystery. But yeah. People don't hear about this one very much.
1: Yeah. The, the idea that they were drunk is repeated often in books and, and articles and, and things like that. But modern historians have pretty much said no, drunkenness may have been a factor in, uh, one One person's guy. decision. They were definitely tired and then sickness was a problem. But it was not as though the American Army showed up and everybody was completely plastered and they were just like, here, this is ours now. Yeah. Not not quite that simple. Yeah. If if you were a military history buff, you probably know 8 million more things about the Hessians. Yeah. And all of their movements in the American Revolution and many, many, many other wars.
0: And probably watching Sleepy Hollow makes you crazy.
1: Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I love Sleepy Hollow. I want to watch it all the time.
0: Well, you can. Yeah.
1: it's. uh I think one of the reasons that I love it is that it's so off the mark. Like, it's so obviously not taking itself seriously in its presentation of history. Uh, I am much more accepting of its glaringly Yeah. not following history for real. Yeah,
0: it's kind of like it makes you the deal at the beginning. Like, we're jumping the tracks here. Yeah. It's just heads up. Yeah. Uh Which does. It makes it easier to accept sort of the fantastical factor of it, it and it not be fantastic. too caught up in the detail incorrectness i just wish there were more clancy brown that's all I'm
1: saying. i i just wish there were more episodes there will be i i mean every day like if there were a daily we'll new get right on
0: that we'll start a campaign
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> i have some listener mail i
0: would be delighted if you would share it
1: this is a postcard an actual postcard we still get these in the mail yes yeah. This is from Kira, and Kira says, Tracy and Holly, I know you two must have quite the postcard collection by now, but in case you haven't hit all seven continents, here is one from Antarctica. I am just finishing up my second season working to support science at McMurdo Station. My last trek down was during the summer, but this year I was part of the skeleton crew that stayed through the winter. Uh, I say that with that weird tone because that would make me... Cr- crazy. <laughs> I hate the cold and I hate the dark, and so I can't imagine this at all. So, with 24 hours of darkness for months and a harsh, cold environment, it is easy to fall prey to a condition called T3 or winter brain. While looking for ways to keep myself intellectually stimulated, I stumbled across a podcast. There were plenty of days that I spent a solid 10 hours listening to old episodes while I worked. I just wanted to say thanks for helping to keep me sane through the long Antarctic winter night. That is from Kira. So this postcard that Kira has sent us, it says Antarctica. Uh, it is an old photo. It is Navy photographers on Observation Hill from 1961. So it's an old photo and it's got these guys and they're on this desolate hill. There is a cross in the foreground. And what this picture says to me is sort of, come to Antarctica, you will die.
0: <laughs> but that's not true. It, it is not true. I had a friend that spent time in Antarctica also doing science research. Yeah. He came back. It's cool. I, I To I, me, I, it's a terrifying prospect because I am a little bit of like... I'll tell you that I think Brian's relatives think I'm his prissy city wife Mm -hmm. (laughs) just because I like the amenities of living in a a city and all the things you can get. And so to not be able to, like, have my whims met Mm -hmm. would make me a little insane.
1: I like the amenities of daylight and warmth. I don't need the daylight. I do like
0: the warmth. Yeah, and I want to be able to go to restaurants when I want them.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, before I was born, my mother and father lived in Alaska for a little while. Huh? I did not know that. Yeah, my dad was in the Army. And my mom has talked about how she found Alaskan winters to be horrible. And her method for dealing with this was to make chocolate chip cookies every week so that the house always smelled like cookies. Oh. Which I think is a great coping mechanism. That's a
0: beautiful coping mechanism. Uh,
1: I, it, I'm so happy that we are able to provide...
0: Entertainment, some entertainment
1: for people that are in the middle of a cold, dark winter because that just—that is a thing that just thinking about kind of crushes my soul a little bit. <laughs> I can't imagine living in a place where there is not a sunrise or a sunset for that long.
0: Our Chinese Before food all, is really, really my thing. <laughs> That's i Like, what do you do when you have to have lo mein? I know it's ridiculous. It, yeah, you know, it so, betray- yeah. betrays my very spoiled nature.
1: But. Yeah, thank you so much for writing to awesome. us Kira and for sending us this postcard. We get a lot of requests about where people can send postcards. And since our address has changed, I'm going to tell you. We were at 3350 Peachtree Road, Northeast, Suite 1150. That part part. has changed. (laughs) Uh, Atlanta, Georgia, 30326. So that is where you can send us a postcard if
0: you would like. Oh, I love the postcards. They're awesome. They are
1: quite fun. We get some that are just like from such far-flung places. I love it. It's wonderful. If you would like to write to us an email, you can. We're at history podcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.comslash history class stuff and on Twitter at Missed in History. Our Tumblr, which is booming lately, is com, and we are also on Pinterest. If you would like to learn a little more about what we've been talking about today, you can go to our website and put the word Revolutionary War in the search bar. You will find Uh, A gallery of Revolutionary War pictures, which includes the famous Washington Crossing the Delaware painting. uh, As well as, why was the American Revolution so revolutionary? You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.